these other speakers, um, just talk with me afterwards. I'll send you to the website. Um, I know a couple of the guys from church are going, so it'd be good to have a, a St. Paul contingent there. Okay, open your Bibles. We're in Genesis 14, and we're going to talk today a little bit more about Melchizedek. So you're going to have to have a finger in uh, Genesis, and then the other key place to look at for Melchizedek stuff is uh, in Hebrews. Genesis and Hebrews. But for those of you who uh, have short-term memory loss like me, let me remind you what, um, what Melchizedek is all about. Um, this comes at the very end. It is the culmination of Abraham's battle with all these, um, all these city kings, right? Remember the name Keterlamer? I know you all know that name really well. He was the king from the north who came down, and um, he, he had some battles with these other kings, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, all these other Canaanite kings, and he defeated them. And part of that victory over those kings was he took captives, including Lot. How is Lot related to Abraham? His nephew, right? And so remember, we were thinking about it like a string. There's a string tied from Abraham to Lot. There is a bond there. And even though Lot has kind of set his own agenda, he's gone apart from Abraham, when Lot gets taken captive... Abraham goes and gets him back. Kinsman redeemer was the big word that we looked at last week. So when Abraham goes, he defeats the king who defeated all the other kings, which makes Abraham what? The The king of kings. Very good. You sound like a Hebrew. That's the way the Hebrews talk. Right? The, the holy of holies is the most holy place. The king of kings is the most king. Right? He's the high king. And so Abraham defeats these guys. And when you win a battle, you have a party. Okay? And this is where Melchizedek comes on the scene. So look in chapter 14, starting at verse 17. And I'm going to read it for us. I have to find my coffee. There we go. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Not grape juice, right? When did grape juice get invented? Thomas Welch. The 1800s, right? There's no such thing as, what, how, do you, what do you, how do you get grape juice? How do you stop fermentation? Is that pasteurization? I think you have to, you have to heat it up, right? Um, so that didn't come about. So we got wine. We got bread and we got wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. Who are the pronouns referring to here? Who's the he? Melchizedek. Everybody say Melchizedek. That's good. That's a big, long name when we have our son. By the way, we're having a baby boy um, in January. We're going to name him Melchizedek. No, it's going to be Melchizedek. I'm sure, I'm sure Liz will agree with me. Melchizedek. He's the, he is a priest, and he's also a king. So he's priest and 
king. Okay. And he blessed Abraham, or Abram at this point still, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What do we call that when you give somebody a tenth? A tithe. He gives him a tithe. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but you take the goods for yourself. Right? Remember, the king of Sodom is important here because he was one of the captives of Keterlamer. So Abram set him free. Or I think he was actually like hiding in a pit somewhere. But Abram has all his stuff. And so Abram's giving him his stuff back at this feast. And he says, no, no, you keep the stuff. Just give me the people. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. Why do you lift your hand? What's the posture there? It's a swear. It's a, it, yeah, it's an oath. <laughs> you swear when you put your hand on the Bible, right? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, that's what Abram's saying here. I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you, the king of Sodom, should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Who are those guys? Do we remember? They're his allies. Yeah, very good. So not everybody in the region is allied with Abram, but these three are. And remember here, this is not just a political alliance, but we should think of a religious alliance as well. Abram is a priest of sorts, and when he goes throughout the land, what's his, always his first order of business? Altars. He builds an altar, the worship of the Lord. And when people make an alliance with Abram, you can bet that part of that is you come and worship with me, right? Um, we worship together. That's part of the alliance. So these guys, I take these three as you know, Gentile believers, right? Um, But even apart from those three Gentile believers, you get this person, Melchizedek. And we've already mentioned his name, but let's see if we can do Melchizedek. I better learn how to spell this if I'm going to name my son this. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is priest and king. All in one. All right? Now, his name means Melchizedek. The Hebrew word Melech is king. So he is the king by his name. And Zedek means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. Okay? He's also, what's the city he's the king of? Salem. And Jim said it pretty good, salam, right? Um, How many of you know the Hebrew word shalom? Do you know what shalom is? Shalom is peace. It's the same word, right? Hebrew is uh, the weirdest language to learn because all of the words can mean like 10 different things. 
Um, and usually, they, I, I don't see what the connection is between all 10 of them. Uh, my Hebrew professor said, you know, every Hebrew word has four meanings. There's the normal meaning, the extended meaning, the opposite of the meaning, a sexual innuendo, and an animal body part. <laughs> all of the words have those five meanings. So all I know is that Salem means peace and shalom is peace, okay? So he's the king of righteousness and he's also the king of peace. Where does he come from? Whose family is he part of? Well, he's got to be somebody's family, right? He's got a belly button, doesn't he? We don't know, right? It's, that's the old question about Adam. Did Adam have a belly button, right? And we could spend two hours discussing that, but we won't. Um, I think he probably did. Otherwise, his kids would say, Dad, how come we're not like you? But in any case, um, Melchizedek just pops up out of nowhere. Usually, especially in the book of Genesis, you get some mention of he is the son of so-and-so. He is the son of so-and-so. We have no family connection for Melchizedek, okay? Who, would, who could be some potential fathers of Melchizedek? Who's, whose family could he be part of? Adam. Yeah, very good. That's the trump card, right? Well, we're all related. Yep. He could somehow be from Noah. We do know Noah's three sons, though. What are Noah's sons? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he's got to be from one of those three lines. Yes? Shem. Why do you think he'd be from Shem? Okay, so if he was from Shem's line, he'd be somehow distantly related to Abraham. Abram is from Shem, okay? Um, we could, there's only th two other options. It's either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. It's probably not Ham, because Ham was the cursed line. Um, so it's probably either Shem or Japheth, but we don't know. And the author of Hebrews makes a big point about this. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. This is where we left off last week. So I was just kind of getting us um, started down this road. Hebrews 7, starting at verse 2. Who wants to read that for us? Hebrews 7, 2. Go ahead, Ben. Okay, so what's happening here in Hebrews is we're getting, uh, we're sort of being set up to think of, of Melchizedek as the precursor to who? Jesus. Yeah, the Son of God. Okay, so King of Righteousness, well, Jesus is King of Righteousness, King of Peace, Jesus is going to be King of Peace, this, and then this business of he has no origin, 
and he has no end. He's the song that never ends, right? He just goes on and on. And that is all there, the author of Hebrews is saying, this, these are resemblances, right? Or this is typical, to use a good word. He is the shadow of Jesus, okay? Now let's keep reading and see what else we, we get out of here. Read, um, keep going, Ben, 4 through 10. Okay, so see where we're going now? There's going to be a comparison between Melchizedek and Levi. Why Levi? What's special about Levi? The priests come from Levi, okay? So we're, we're getting a setup again here of who's the better priest, whose dad can beat up whose dad, right? And Sam knows the answer. His dad can beat everybody else's dad up, right? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Good answer. Um, But that's the thought here. Which is the greater priesthood? Is it Melchizedek's priesthood or the priesthood that's connected to Levi? And let's just make sure we all know, who is the high priest of the Levitical priesthood? Aaron. Okay, Aaron. Now, you would expect, right, if we were faithful Jews, uh, we would expect, oh, well, the, God has established the tabernacle. He has given the priesthood to the Levites. Um, all of these sacrifices are the way that sin is being dealt with in the Old Testament so that God and man can come together and there's not an explosion. There's not an atom bomb going off. Um, so when the Messiah comes, he'll probably be like that, right? That's a good way of thinking. You can, see, you can at least understand why somebody would expect the Messiah will come from Levi. All right? Now, what's the other tribe? So priests in Israel have to be from Levi. Where do kings come from in Israel? From who? David. And David's of the tribe of Judah, right? So you have this problem in Israel or in, um, in Judaism. Which Messiah should we be expecting? The priest kind of Messiah or the king kind of Messiah? And so how do you solve that problem? Well, you do it the same way that um, I think I've trained you all. Whenever I ask you an either-or question, what's usually the answer? both, right? So this is the way that the Jews, some of the Jews, at least at the time of Jesus, they said, there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be the priest messiah, and there's going to be the king messiah, and they're going to be separate, okay? And Jesus says, hold my beer, right? Watch this. And so he comes as, he comes from which tribe? Is he descended from Levi or Judah? 
He's from Judah, so he's royal. He's royalty. But what does that leave? What is he, he also, we also need a priest, don't we? So which priesthood is Jesus part of? This one. Melchizedek's priesthood, which is the uber priesthood, right? He's the, he's the high, high priest. So Aaron is the priest of priests, the high priest. Jesus is the priest of priest of priests. That's how you do it in Hebrew. You just keep tacking on the word. Um, by the way, when God says, you shall surely die, some of the old translations kind of did that repetition for you, right? Dying, you shall surely die. So the more you repeat a word, the more emphatic you are. Um, but that's what we're getting here. Melchizedek is showing us there is a better priesthood than Levi's priesthood. There's a better kind of priest than Aaron. There's a better kind of sacrifice than the sacrifices that were offered in the temple, even. Okay? And we see in Melchizedek, he doesn't really offer anything, does he? What does he offer in Genesis 14? You, he gives a blessing. Yes, very good. So there's no mention of he burned up, you know, what would be the best thing to sacrifice? A bull. A bull, probably, yeah. A big white bull. That's what Zeus would want, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but he doesn't, we don't get any mention about an animal sacrifice with Melchizedek. You do get a mention of he brings something out. Go back to Genesis 14. He brings out bread and wine. And we'll, we'll do a little bit of a tangent here on wine, because I feel like talking about wine this morning. Um, but no mention of what he's offering up to God. Instead, the focus here on Melchizedek's priesthood is on what he gives to Abram. And he gives him this blessing, which to us, it sounds like, like a wish, right? So um, sometimes this is the, we, we have to train ourselves when we hear in the Bible, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's not like a, a pipe dream, right? That's not just a, I hope this happens. I hope you have God's blessing but maybe you won't. Um, at the end of the service, when I give you the blessing, it's not a maybe, possibly. It's a done deal, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. Um, some of the, the old hymnals, they even took out the word may. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Sometimes when I give the blessing after communion, my, I still kind of insert the word may. May the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ um, keep you and preserve you in the true faith, right? Um, but a lot of the hymnals have taken out that word may because they want to remove the thought that this is a wish. It's not a wish. It's a declaration. It's a promise. And so what Melchizedek is doing for Abram is not just, you know, Abram, I want to say something nice about you. You seem like a really nice guy. And I want to say, I want to give you a compliment. You're so wonderful, Abram. He's, this is a, a blessing. The priest is the mediator of this blessing to Abram. So he gives him the blessing, and what's that, what that's setting us up for is to see when Jesus comes, when the greater high priest comes, the true Melchizedek-type priest, he's going to come, and what's he going to give us? The blessing. 
right? The blessing. Blessed be when Jesus um, blesses us. You can think of it in these terms. Blessed be y'all by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now that, that word sounds kind of simple because we use it so often. It's like the word love. The more you use it to refer to all kinds of different things, it be, it's elastic, right? So now when somebody tells me they love me, I'm not sure what they mean anymore, right? Because I love my wife. I love my kids. I love baseball. I love pizza. I love coffee. Do, do, when you tell me you love me, are you saying that I'm like coffee to you, right? Um, see how the more you use a word, it kind of loses its, its meaning. And that word blessing... I think is like that for us. We hear it as just sort of very general, very generic. You know, the Lord bless you. Okay, I'm not sure what that is. I know it's good, but I don't know what it is. Um, The blessing, Abraham's life, I want you to see his whole life is part of this blessing. And there's really two primary things in Abraham's life that are tied into the blessing. What are the two elements of God's blessing on Abraham? Land and descendants. Land and a future. The concern for descendants. Why do we care about our children? Because they're so cute, right? (laughs) So we give them great names like Melchizedek. It's a concern for the future. It's the, it, our children are the, are the extension of ourselves into the future, to the next generation and the generation after. That's why people often say to me, oh, pastor, I love hearing kids in church because I can see the future, right? I, when I look at my kids, I can see the future. So God gives Abraham the blessing of a home and a future. That's tied in there. And you should think of that yourself. When you have the Lord's blessing, you have a home and a future. Try to, try to take it from being this general kind of abstract thing and make it more concrete, okay? Now, let's talk about uh, a little bit more with Melchizedek here. Um, think about this bread and wine business, okay? And we could do the same thing for bread, but bread is boring, isn't it? Are any of you bread bakers? Anybody? Sherry said she tried. Yeah. Bread, okay, it's not that bread is boring, but bread is basic, right? Bread is basic. And wine, wine is the good stuff. How many of you are are winemakers? Yeah, that's right. Todd gives me a bottle of wine every Christmas. You should do it every month, Todd. Um, But the, the blessing of wine, let's think about wine here. And I've got some slides for us. Melchizedek brings out wine. And remember, when we think of Melchizedek, we want to also think side by side. We want to think of Jesus and Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is going to bring wine. And Jesus, well, Jesus, there's a lot of things that have to do with Jesus and wine. But let's, let's explore wine a little bit here. Go to Genesis 9. And we get the first mention of wine in the Bible. Genesis 9, 20 to 21. So you just go back a couple pages. Here's what it says. Genesis 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Adam was a man of dust. Noah is like that. 
He's a man of soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So what does wine do to you? It makes you Say it louder, Sam. It makes you sleepy. It makes you sleepy. That's the point here, okay? When we read this, we, ha- we have to get over, and, and drunkenness is sinful, right? So don't misunderstand me. But I don't think that Noah here is, this is not in the Bible to show you, see what a sinner Noah was? See what a bad guy he was? He drank too much. He was a drunk. Here's, here's the, the thing. Think about the time. When does this happen to Noah? After the flood, when he has shalom, when he has peace, when he's at rest, wine comes at the end. I've told you that before, right? You're not allowed to drink wine with breakfast. You drink wine with dinner. And then another glass after dinner. And then one, a nightcap, right, before you go to bed. Because it makes you sleepy, okay? But this blessing of rest... Here's the connection I want you to see. Wine is the fit, it's the proper, it's the appropriate thing when you're finished. When you're done with all your work and you can rest from your labors, you pour yourself a glass of wine. Okay? So Noah drinks wine. And Melchizedek brings out the wine when? When does Melchizedek give Abram wine? After the battle. Once the fight is over... Once the warfare is ceased, you get the wine. Okay? Let's look at the next one. Go to, um, go to uh, Genesis 49. We'll stick in Genesis here. This is uh, Jacob's speech to his children. Jacob is at the end of his life. How many sons does Jacob have? Twelve sons. Just like Jesus has his twelve, his twelve-fold um, posse. Jacob has his twelve sons, and he's going to give them a final blessing. So this is like prophetic blessing on his sons. And here's what he says about Judah. Um, if you look back at verse 10, you could go all the way back to 8, but we'll just pick it up at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Who holds a scepter? A king. So Judah's going to be a king. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. He's going to rule over his enemies. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture is the blood of grapes. How many of you read that and think, man, I wish that could be me? (laughs) Jacob wants to be. That's good, right? That's the idea here. This is a depiction. This is a depiction of the future blessing that's going to come on Judah. So Judah's going to be so blessed, you know, it's going to be so good for Judah that he's going to tie his animals up to vines. Wherever Judah is, there's going to be Lots and lots of grapes everywhere, okay? In fact, there's going to be so much wine around Judah that what's he going to do with it? 
he's going to wash his clothes in wine, right? It's like, you know, I'm so rich that I use $20 bills to blow my nose, right? Um, <laughs> that's the idea for Judah. He is so blessed. He has so much blessing that he can wash his, it's like detergent. Wine is like soap to him. He uses it for everything, and he's covered in it. He's dressed in wine, okay? So, now I, I, I want to jump right to Jesus, but I, I got to hold my horses here, okay? Um, because what we would expect then is to see this blessing, this wine being given, certainly when Jesus comes, but you would also expect to see it kind of in a preliminary way. Where would you expect to see wine, the blessing of God, where there's rest, where there's peace? What would be the place you would think that you'd see wine? That, well, you're thinking of, G, of, um, of Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Um, did you say Canaan? Yeah, right. And we're at, we won't look at it now, but this is the way the land of Canaan is described. It flows with milk and honey. It is a land of wine. That's the other description that's given to it. Um, rather than trying to get, read my mind, I would expect to see wine in the temple, right? If wine is this picture of blessing, of peace and rest, well, the place of rest, the place of peace and blessing is the temple. I would expect that there would be wine in the temple. And there is, but nobody gets to drink it except God. Go to Leviticus uh, chapter 10 there. They offered in the temple um, all kinds of animals. You know that. They also offered grain. What happens when you burn up grain? When you burn your bread, what happens? Smoke. And how does it smell? Acrid. That's a good word. It smells bad. It's, it stinks. So when they offered grain, they had to pour a bunch of oil on it, which made it do what? really burn, right? Um, it burned faster. There'd be less smoke because it'd be hotter. And also, they had to put on incense. The incense ha uh, had the same function that deodorant has. It, it is camouflage. It covers up how bad you smell. Right, Phil? This is what every high school boy um, discovers all of a sudden. He stinks. My armpits stink. My body stinks. I have a terrible aroma, and the girls don't want to talk to me. So, what does every high school boy do? Well, he showers, and then he starts spraying himself with everything he can think of. I don't, did Reese do this? Axe body spray was the big deal when I was in high school. All the guys, you had a packet, or you had a, a, a can of Axe in your backpack, and between classes, there was always the one kid spraying himself down in the hallway. And then he just walked around with a cloud around him. And the girls, they didn't like it. <laughs> um, but he thought he was cool. And he wasn't me, I promise. But um, that happened in the temple. They covered the smoke of the, especially the grain offering, but also the animal sacrifices would have a bad smell. It was all covered by the incense. Okay? So we got animals, we got grain, and then there was wine. 
the wine was all poured out on the altar. Okay? And if you look in Leviticus 10, verse 9, what does it say here? The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, on penalty of death. It is absolutely forbidden to the priests. They get to, sh- they get to share in the animal sacrifices. I, that's, this is, we, we don't have a good sense of um, this because it's so distant from us. But they got to eat everything else. They got to have a portion of the, the meat sacrifices. They got a portion of the grain offerings. They even could take some of the wine home, but they were never allowed to drink with God. You're not allowed. You can eat with the Lord. You can um, share in his bread. You can share in his meat. But no priest gets to drink the wine. Okay? Go to one more. Go to Numbers chapter 6. Starting there at verse 1. This is, if you, um, if you can't be a priest, if you're not fortunate enough to be of the tribe of Levi, the next best thing is you can become a Nazarite. Who are the famous Nazarites in the Bible? Samson, Samson the man, right? John the Baptist. And there's one other one, Samuel. Samson and Samuel were probably contemporaries, by the way, but Samson and Samuel and then John the Baptist. Here's the rule, though. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman, so you ladies, you can be like Samson too. You can have long hair. You can be be a warrior bride. Um, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or even eat any grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Okay? So when you're, when you're a priest on duty, no drinking. When you're a Nazarite, you're always on duty. And you don't even get to, you can't even, like, don't even look at a grape if you're a Nazarite. Okay? The wine is delayed. Here's the point. Wine comes when you're finished. That's what it was for Noah. That's what it was for Abram. And the priests are never finished, are they? If you were a priest, you, got no, you had no days off, at least not when you were on duty. Right? Every morning, every evening, you offer the sacrifices. Every year when Yom Kippur rolls around, that's the Day of Atonement, you've got to make the sacrifice. And guess what? As good as it was one year, you had to do it all over again the next year. Okay? Um, you know what the sacrifice... This is a good way to think of the sacrifices. They were like kicking the can down the road. God is, he sets up the temple and he's kind of kicking the can down the road. He just keeps kicking. Every year, every day, the sacrifices are offered so that the sins don't catch up. But they're never really dealt with. 
And so, you know what happens when you, you know, you just delay your problems? When you finally get to them, they're bigger. <laughs> and so the, the sins, in a sense, throughout the Old Testament, it's like sin is just piling up, piling up, piling up. And the priests just keep pushing it off. Push, not this year, not today, not today, not today. And so then Jesus comes around and he's like, all right, we got to stop kicking the can. We got to actually deal with this. And he deals with it, okay? And he offers himself and all that good stuff. Now, the wine with Jesus, okay? Priests never allowed to drink wine. Nazarites never allowed to drink with God. What does Jesus do? What's his reputation? This man is a glutton and a wine-bibber. That's what it said in the King James, which is the authoritative translation. Um, how many of you are wine-bibbers? Don't raise your hand, right? What does it mean to be a... You're not a wine-bibber, Jake. What is a wine-bibber? A drunkard. He's the kind of guy who washes his clothing with wine. He always smells like wine. That's a wine-bibber. Now, Jesus was not a drunkard. We should be clear about that. But that's what people said about him, right? That was his reputation. And why would they say that about him? Because they don't like him. But if you just start hurling insults at somebody you don't like, yeah, there has to be some kernel in there, right? Because he was always hanging around, Todd said he was hanging around the bad people. That was part of it. And what was he doing with them? He wasn't saying, let's all go to AA together, right? He, he was eating with them. And even worse than eating with them, drinking. he was drinking wine with them. How can you, you know, that's, it's bad enough to eat with a sinner. But when you share a glass of wine, that's even worse. That could be. That's what they said about the apostles, right? Um, they don't make any sense. But my, my point is simply, Jesus, the, he had this reputation of drinking wine. Now, they oversold it. They, you know, he's a drunkard, and Jesus was not a drunk. But he did drink wine with people, okay? Um, frequently. Frequently enough that people would say, yeah, that's true. He's a, he's a wine-bibber. In his defense, though, probably everybody drank wine. Well, I, I'm not interested in defending him. I think it's great. Jesus comes and he drinks wine. But what I'm saying is, how could his contemporaries say, look at this drunkard when they got their own glass? Well, because he's doing it with the wrong people at the wrong time, in the wrong place. He, he drinks the bad kind of wine. Not the, he doesn't drink Chardonnay. Anyways, um, we also know, this is the famous wine story. Go to John chapter 2. When Jesus wants to manifest his glory, this is, the, this is what he does. John 2, you know the story, but it's good to turn there. There's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus gets the invitation. Always good to invite Jesus to your wedding. Um, his mom, too. His mother was there. Jesus, in verse 2, Jesus also is invited. And then there's a problem. What's the problem? They run out of wine. And so who does Mary turn to? Jesus. You know about wine. 
you're good with wine, Jesus. Right? How old is Jesus at this point? He's probably 30, right? We know he was baptized when he was about, in Luke's gospel, it says he was about 30. So that's what we go with, right? Um, He was 30, okay? And Mary says to him, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus looks back at her and he says, it's not my wedding, right? What what is this? Why Why are you telling me? But then he goes ahead as if it was his wedding, So he takes up the problem as if it was his problem. And look down at what it says uh, in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So we're going to do some math, Chris. I don't know why in my mind I associate you with math, Chrissy. So we've got six times, let's go with 25 because that's easy, 20 to 30 makes 25. That, in the way I do math, that makes 150. Is that right? Okay. Now, Todd, how much wine do you, you said you're a wine maker. How much do you make? Uh, Six gallons. gallons. How many bottles of wine can you make out of six gallons? So six, so if six gallons makes 30 bottles, 150 gallons makes, you do the math, a lot, okay? (laughs) Uh, 150 gallons worth of wine. That is, I don't care how big your wedding party is, that's more than enough. That's what we call more than enough. Everybody can have some and some more and some more. You you know, it's like you get, usually you go to the party, you get two, two drink tickets Jesus is like, just throw the drink tickets away, right? We've got enough. Yeah, probably, but still, I don't know. My family drinks a lot of wine, but we don't go through 150 gallons when we get together. You gotta, you gotta, yeah, you gotta um, party for a couple years to get through that much wine. Okay, so when Jesus shows up, remember these promises that we've seen in the Old Testament. He isn't just doing this um, because he's bad at math and he miscalculated and he forgot how much wine they actually needed. He's showing, hey, remember what uh, Jacob said about Judah? He'll tie his colt to the vine. He'll wash his clothes in wine. Check it out. Here I am. Right? All of his actions are symbolic. All of them kind of draw in the Old Testament. Okay? And so he's showing he's, he's Judah's heir. Okay? But we still don't have, I mean, I suppose they're all drinking wine with Jesus, but we still don't have this opening up to the rest of us until Matthew 26. Go to Matthew 26. And we want to look at verses uh, 27 and following. Matthew 26, 27. How am I doing on time, by the way? I don't have my watch today. Ten Ten minutes. All right, perfect. 27. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying... 
You know these words. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay? Now, when we as Lutherans read this, whenever we start talking about the Lord's Supper, what do we usually think of? The wine is his blood. And we do a big song and dance about the real presence. And that's a good song and dance to do. Okay? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus could have used anything as the, as the drink. Right? I suppose he could have used anything. But he chooses wine on purpose. And what he wants you to connect is all of this stuff that I've been saying here this morning, wine comes at the end of the work, it is the gift of peace, it is the gift of rest. Jesus is saying, when you have the Lord's Supper, you get to drink wine, right? The priests in the Old Testament never got that. They, were, they could drink at home, but they could never drink with God. Jesus says, after I'm finished, look at that, verse 29, I love this passage, I will, drink, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, when does the Father's kingdom come into effect? When I die and go to heaven, that's true. When will it be evident for everybody to see? On the last day, the resurrection, we'll be drinking wine with Jesus. But you don't have to wait until you die to drink wine. And you don't have to wait until the resurrection to drink wine. What has he just gotten done giving his disciples? The Lord's Supper. So when does the Father's kingdom begin in earnest? As soon as Jesus rises, right? As soon as he rises from the dead. The Father's kingdom is in effect, right? And in the Father's kingdom, you don't have the, um, the delay any longer. Remember what uh, the priests, the rule for the priests was? You're not allowed to drink any wine. What was the penalty if you did? Death. Death. Jesus says, you got to drink this wine. It's so good. You got to have this cup. And the reason why, the reason why that was delayed in the Old Testament, but now given in the New, see if you can put it together. Why are we allowed to drink wine when they weren't in the Old Testament? The Savior is coming. That's right. It's timing. The time is right. Okay? Um, it's kind of like your kids. Um, I got to tell this story about Jacob. I told him I was going to tell this story. When Jacob was about six... I asked him, Jacob, do you want to receive the Lord's Supper? Because I was curious what he'd say. I've told this story before. You might remember it. Um, I was curious what he'd say. Because Sam was already saying, Dad, I want to receive the Lord's Supper because it's the true body. And, you know, he's a Lutheran. Because it's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us Christians to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of my sins. All that good stuff, right? They know so much younger than we think they do. But I wanted to see what Jacob would say. And so little six-year-old Jacob looks at me and he goes, of course I want to uh, receive the Lord's Supper. And I'm like, all right, good. See how my kids are getting this stuff? And I go, all right, Why? because you should know why. I want to know what wine tastes like, right? <laughs> Which was the clue, okay, he's not ready, 
You're not, he's not ready to receive communion. But the timing, um, it's a sense of timing. After Jesus' death, what did he say on the cross? It is finished. Sin has finally been dealt with. And so like Noah drinking his wine after the flood, Jesus says, not only do I get to drink the wine now, but all of my disciples do too. Yes. Yeah, the, the prohibition is over. The time for, um, the time for prohibition, <laughs> yeah, that's the right word for it, right? The time for prohibition was the Old Testament. The time for drinking with Jesus is the New Testament. So you think of that. When you come to the Lord's Supper, I want you to have that in mind. Um, you are in this position of Abraham with Melchizedek. Right? Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine. His war was over. And every week, right, Sunday comes both at the beginning of the week and the end of the week. It's like all of your, all of your labors are over and you drink, you relax with Jesus. Yes? They do. They drink the Seder, but the, um, the wine, it was, it was never that you weren't allowed to drink at all in the Old Testament. They drank plenty of wine, but it was always in your home. You're allowed to drink wine at home, um, but you can't drink with God. That was, that was the key. The priests, when you're serving in the temple, no. When you go home, sure, drink with your family, but God drinks the wine in a sense. The wine is poured out. It's offered to him. He has the drink, but he doesn't share it with the priests until Jesus shows up. The, yeah, the Seder, so a couple things with the Seder. The Seder meal um, was, is a later um, kind of, what's the right word? Yeah, it's, it's a guess as to what they did at the time of Jesus. And the Seder meal, the Passover meal, um, was, you, you need the temple, really, to have Passover, because the whole point of Passover is you eat the lamb that was sacrificed. So the Seder, whatever the Jews do now in the Seder meal, is not what Jesus, that's not the Passover. It's the, you know, we don't have a temple anymore, and so we, we still want to observe Passover somehow, but it's been changed. This is always the, you can't go with, well, what do Jews do now? That must be what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That there's a bit of a, it's called an anachronism. You assume that the present is what happened in the past. Um, the other thing with the Seder is that the, the, the cup that was, that was drunk, um, those, that meal took place in the home. You didn't drink that in the temple or in the courtyard. That's, that's what you do at home. So, yes, they had wine in the Old Testament. It wasn't a total prohibition. You just weren't allowed to drink with God. And drinking with God is a lot better than drinking home alone, right? This is, this is the danger of, um, of, you know, the way that we view alcohol is it's an escape, right? Uh, for, for many people, this is the abuse of the good thing is that I drink by myself to drown my sorrows and I isolate myself, right? So you go into a bar and what's everybody doing at the bar? Drinking 
alone, watching TV, right? Um, the, the way that wine is supposed to work is that it is communal. It, it, uh, it brings you out of yourself and you share in the joy of other people. That's the proper way to use it. I know, but it's, it's a matter of timing, Mike. If we had evening, you know what we should do? We should have Sunday night church. Have you ever heard of this? Sunday night church, like the Baptists. And then afterwards, we get out the, grape ju- the wine and we drink wine while we study the Bible. Yeah, that'd be good. Yes? Yeah, the, the Orthodox Jews, even though um, the temple was so important, the temple was so significant, and the priesthood and the sacrifices and everything, when you lose the temple, when you take the temple away, that is a, an absolute change to the whole religious life. So if you wanted an analogy, the, the modern-day Orthodox are the Pharisees. That because the Pharisees were saying, the temple is all corrupt, we need to kind of purify ourselves without the temple. Now, they still used the temple, but they kind of started to develop this kind of Judaism apart from the temple and the sacrifices. And that's what you have with modern, you know, even Orthodox Judaism. And, and Sure, sure. I, mean, I don't know what I'm I, I'm not, I, I just have it. Yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. Um, okay, so we'll stop there this week. Next week we'll pick up in chapter 15. We'll get to the next part and we'll see this promise that his offspring will be like the stars. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have um, brought peace and rest and that you give us already now a foretaste of the feast to come in the forgiveness of our sins and, uh, and peace with you and your Father. We pray that you would bless us now, those who have received your Holy Communion uh, and those who go into your house um, to offer thanksgiving and praise and receive from you a blessing and the gift of uh, your blood under the wine. Bless us now as we go to our homes. In your name we pray. Amen.